This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and this week, the fifth anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon tragedy, we're talking about what lessons have been learned since then. And in this segment, I'm delighted to have Charlie Williams with us. And Charlie Williams is the director of an organization that was formed by industry following uh, the accident to make sure that safety practices were, were implemented, were enforced. And his organization is called the Center for Off shore safety. And Charlie, I appreciate you joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. Thank you so much. Let's start right off with what is the Center for Offshore Safety? So we're an industry association and we were formed, uh, as you said, after Macondo, uh, really for, for two reasons. One reason is the Presidential Commission made a recommendation that there should be such an organization. Uh, for the industry, by the organization, by the industry organization focused on entirely on safety. And then also, of course, the industry itself, and I was part of the review, looked at other similar organizations and other industries and felt like that uh, it was a good thing to do uh, in, in any case. So for those two reasons, we got created. And we're unique in that we're focused entirely on safety and environmental management systems and how to make those as effective as possible. So we're, you know, a little bit different than other kinds of safety organizations, and we have a a single focused mission. And, Charlie, from what background did you come into this? You know, I'm the executive director myself of companion organizations, and people often ask me, now, what qualifies you to do what you do? And my answer is I have absolutely no qualifications whatsoever to do what I do. I've been a professional motivational speaker uh, prior to getting into the energy industry eight years ago, but I recall from reading your information online, you have quite a depth of knowledge. Uh, well, I was uh, I, I uh, had a career with Shell, which was uh, 40 years, and uh, I uh, basically uh, in my career was split into about three pieces: one in engineering and engineering management, one in operations. So I had quite a few operational jobs, including superintendent jobs and operations managers jobs, and then uh, I had another part of my career toward the end of my career where I, I was either. In our research lab, I was, I was vice president of the research for a while, or I was doing uh, in-office consulting to senior management and reviewing uh, significant projects uh, around the world for uh, for Shell. And my last job I had when I retired was uh, chief scientist for well engineering and production technology. So you have quite a quite a uh, an understanding of how the industry works, and uh, this sounds like a perfect fit for you. Yes, ma'am. I think that's, so. That's great. So you know, I, there's a lot of people out there who think that there is no way to drill safely offshore, and they see that what happened five years ago was for them 
the perfect talking point to say we should not drill off the Atlantic coast. We should not drill in the Arctic. And really, they don't want us drilling in the Gulf of Mexico uh, either. Uh, to what do you say to those people? Well, I, I absolutely don't agree with that. And, uh, <laughs> and I don't agree with that for, uh, you know, for two reasons that I like to talk about. Uh, you know, the, the first reason I like to talk about is because of, uh, uh, you know, the significant uh, uh, enhancements and improvements that the industry's made in safety since Macondo that really built on already good safety programs that uh, many of the companies, you know, had in place and were, were working on. And the, and the one that I particularly, you know, work on in Center for Offshore Safety are these safety and environmental management systems, and they're... Uh, uh, different than what a lot of people think about safety. So it's very important in the industry, and we've done well on personnel safety, which is people falling down the stairs and you know, and and wearing your hard hat and gloves and things like that. That's extremely important. We've done extremely well. But when you look at at major incidents, uh, a key uh, uh, barrier to to preventing a major incident is not related to these personnel injuries. It's related to embedding into your business processes uh, when you plan and execute and manage change and um, develop uh, barriers and and maintain those barriers. It's part of embedding this into the management uh, processes of your company and continuously uh, uh, doing that. And so it's, it's, it's different than a lot of people think about safety. You know, this, this was, uh, and then, you know, the next aspect of that is to, is to measure it, you know, to, and in this case we measure it through different uh, kinds of measures, develop a Center for Offshore Safety in addition to the auditing that's required by uh, BESI, but was already done, uh, you know, by uh, a lot of companies ahead of uh, Whoa, 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 a sec, Charlie. Bessie, I mean, I know what you're talking about, but I don't know that our listeners do. That's all right. I know, but like I said, I want to get that clear. Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement. And Bessie is one of the three new organizations that came out of the breaking up of MMS. Is that correct? That's correct. And MMS was marine mining. What is it? Mineral Management Service. Mineral Management Service. And here I came up with marine mining and safety. Who knows? I Obviously, pretty, pretty I didn't good, know. <laughs> well, it, it fits the letters and, and the, the concept. But they broke that up. That was one of the, the early things that was done. Now, I'm really kind of a limited government type person, and so I, when, when they take one government agency and break it up into three, I t- my natural reaction is to kind of go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. But this has been a good, good change for the industry, I understand. Well, uh, let me say this. I mean, it, was, you know, it made sense in this <laughs> regard in that the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement was focused on uh, it, you know, the, on, on safety and enforcement, just like it said. So it made their mission clear. Bone Real clear. With, with the other organization, really focuses on on leasing and uh, development plans and that part of the business. And then the other organization they created focused on collecting the royalty. All three of those were done together in one organization. So the theory was splitting them into 
three organizations with a single focus in each organization. You know, you know, certainly the idea of improving the focus, you know, was a was a good one. And and uh, you know, the, the only thing I'd add is that, like you well know, when you have three organizations, these organizations certainly Bone and Bessie have to work together, and so. Uh, they put a lot of effort into thinking about how they would work across these new, new organizational boundaries, and and um, you know, and, and that ha- it's a really important thing for them to work on and focus on. Always is 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 making sure that working across that organizational boundary is is a, as a efficient and effective as if, as if you were a single organization. And when did they do that breakup? Well, I can't remember the exact time now. It was, you know, it was, it was after uh, Macondo, certainly. Right. Was when, but was it when, like uh, in the first year, or has it been several years down the road? No, no, it was probably the first year. It was when Director Bromwich was the director. And and that was early on, because, you know, we, we've had three directors uh, post-Macondo. We've had uh, uh, Director Bromwich, Director Watson, and uh, and uh, uh, and now uh, you know the the new new director uh, Brian Savidio. And, and has that been problematic having three directors in five years? No, I don't think so. You know they were um, you know, two of them. Uh, the last two were actually ex Coast Guard people, and uh, and before that. Uh, 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 director Bromwich was, uh, you know, a prosecuting attorney, and I think they were chosen at the time. They were chosen for, you know, again for the for, for the mission, and and I don't think that's been a problem at uh, at all. Okay, well, I, I've maybe gotten you a bit off topic, Charlie, talking about these government agencies. Tell me what the industry has implemented. Uh, since since the the tragedy, the BP spill, what is what has industry done to uh, a make drilling in the Gulf or offshore anywhere safer? And um, you know how how could, how what have they done to to comfort the public on this? Um, can I go back and correct one thing I said? Of course you may. So uh, the Bessie, the current Bessie director is uh, Brian Salerno. Okay, I wouldn't, have, anyway. I wouldn't have been able to catch you on that one. That's for sure. It's a good friend of mine, <laughs> so, I to, so I wanted to correct that. All right, but, no worries. But uh, anyway, back to that. So, so there's really uh, there's several areas that we're focused on. So immediately after Macondo, uh, the industry set up study groups to look at, you know, what were the areas that could be enhanced, improved, or new things we could do to, uh, to address, uh, you know, what we've, what we've learned and what we've seen so far from the Macondo incident. And so as a result of that, uh, one thing that was done was there were, there were new uh, industry standards done uh, in the American Petroleum Institute, and those standards were, were about around blowout preventers. They were around... Um, well integrity, cementing wells, and in, improving uh, well integrity, and it was so. It was in those areas. There was also a, a new recommended practice on deep well drilling. There was a new uh, bulletin on uh, on uh, how you do a bridging document, which essentially says how are you going to work together with your contractor as an operator and, and have a good 
seamless safety systems between uh, the two. And so there was numerous new standards and uh, recommended practices that were either written new or revised that you know, that are now, there's still ones being worked on now, but most of those are, are in place and many of those have been adopted or will be adopted into new regulations as we go along. So that was one. Another one was um, the uh, subsea containment. So the result of that was was uh, the marine well containment system and the helix well containment system, which you know rep, uh, represent not only significant resources from the industry, but also significant uh, investment in the industry in building systems that are ready, managed, manned, staffed, and have trained crews that can deploy subsea containment equipment, and it's uh, ready to go, and it's. Uh, uh, similar to, but a new generation of equipment that was ultimately used uh, at Macondo. Um, but in this case, it's been tested. It's, the tests have been monitored by uh, Bessie, by the government, and, and the equipment is there, and the crews are there, and it's ready to go. There was a, there was ongoing studies about spill cleanup, especially on things like dispersants and all that are being done by the industry. But in particular, there was a, a lot of new equipment and equipment capacity added for a spill cleanup, and so the, but that capacity, including things like uh, X-band radar and infrared, that allows you to work in a more inclement weather, to work at night, and to also find oil uh, slicks and determine the thickness of oil slicks more effectively, so you can find them, locate them, and um, and clean them up uh, more effectively and, and quickly. But and then of course the last one, which is, of course, is the one I spent uh, the majority of my time on is Center for Offshore Safety, which was created. And and, and all of these, I think, um, it's it's really clear that the industry, uh, you know, the industry's worked together in the past, but there's a clear commitment from the industry to work together even more effectively, and to to, to really uh, share, learn, and and develop these capabilities and continue to improve these capabilities as we go forward. And I think that's one of the really significant things since Macondo is that. Well, a lot of work happened. Charlie, we're out of time. I appreciate you taking your time to talk with us today on America's Voice for Energy. Thank you so much. Thank you. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF. A nonprofit organization is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Okay, David, I'm not sure which segment this is going to be. As I record some others, we'll, we'll know where this fits, okay? We'll record in three, two, one.
Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and I'm excited to be talking today in this segment with Jason Hutt. We're talking about the Deepwater Horizon explosion five years ago, the accident that killed 11 people, and most specifically, what lessons have we learned? And with Jason, we're going to talk about, you know, is the industry safer now than it was then? Have we actually learned some lessons? Jason Hutt is the head of the Environment and Natural Resources Group with the law firm Bracewell and Giuliani. And I have to say, Jason, that uh, your, your firm is a wonderful resource for me because you all address so many energy issues that often when I need experts, I reach out to you all and I appreciate uh, your availability. I appreciate that, that you guys are there for me. Well, thank you, Marita. We uh, we like to say we know energy, so we're happy to participate in your program. Thank you. Yeah, well, you definitely do know energy. So you've been involved uh, closely with with uh, the BP spill, the Deepwater Horizon, the Maconda Well. It's it's addressed a lot of different ways. Tell us how you're involved with this. Well, uh, our firm and our practice group represents lots of different clients in the industry, both on the producer side as well as the oil field services company side. So we, uh, as lawyers to those folks, assist from transactions to regulatory matters to policy issues up on, on the hill here in Washington where, I, where I'm a uh, resident. You know, I've seen on this this particular issue, um, kind of a difference. You know, I'm kind of a limited government type of person, and so I tend to uh, think we've got way too much regulation and too much of a heavy hand on government. In fact, in my column, I have a quote from Louisiana's Senator Vitter, who who uh, was critical of President Obama's immediate uh, drilling moratorium in the Gulf, and but yet it seems like in this case that industry and the regulatory bodies have been much more cooperative than I'm accustomed to seeing them. Is that a correct perception? Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, there was, you know, a shockwave that went through both government and industry from the Macondo incident, and it forced people, uh, both in the government, to undergo some organizational changes within the government and how the Department of Interior approached the regulated community, but also inside the regulated community to come to the realization that, you know, when this happens to one uh, entity in that community, it happens to everyone, and, and the moratorium was, uh, was proof of that. So there is a, a much greater degree of collaboration, uh, of sharing of best practices, of the development of those practices through associations like API, and in collaboration with the government and the rulemakings that they've undertaken to, to put into place many of the things that the industry was already doing on a voluntary basis. So when you say the industry was doing these things on a voluntary basis, that means that probably not everybody was engaging in those, maybe the the better actors perhaps, or but now these things are, are mandatory? Well, there are things related to uh, blowout preventers, which was one of the mechanisms that, that failed in the Macondo incident where people put a lot of focused attention on what are the best ways to uh, construct them, to maintain them, uh, to verify that maintenance. And so those 
better practices were put into uh, into regulatory effect through the BOP rules that uh, the Obama administration proposed as an interim rule back in October of 2010 and then finalized uh, later on in August of 2012. And do you, do you feel like that rule from the Obama administration was right and appropriate? And what's the difference in it from the old way for our listeners? So the rule established some new standards for casing and cementing, uh, including integrity testing requirements. They required independent third-party verification of the blind shear ram capability in the in the BOP stack, that's the, the blowout preventer stack. Uh, they added some new requirements and functional testing for those for the BOPs. So in essence, many of the things that had been reflected in some of the industry best practices were then incorporated into into the regulation. You have sort of two dynamics that push you, that propel the industry forward. One is sort of a pushing mechanism, which is the, which is the regulations that come from, uh, from Bessie and, and uh, the Department of Interior. And then you have a polling mechanism, and that is the best practices of the industry that become incorporated in, into the regulations over time. So we're constantly moving forward in an effort to do things in a safer, more environmentally uh, friendly way. So I, you know, I think many people feel like there's no way to do offshore drilling in a safe and environmentally friendly way. But I assume you would you would disagree with that. I, I would disagree. I mean, I, I think that there are lots of opportunities to do it safely. Uh, we need to. It, it's a constant effort to try to become safer, particularly when. Uh, we're in the deep, for the deep water well environments where we're pushing uh, the technology and our knowledge in engineering to, uh, you know, get out and explore new areas. So we have to constantly have, the industry needs to constantly have a degree of unease that helps them to, to recognize the risks that may arise and then to you know, develop programs and approaches that address those risks. And so the blowout preventers are now um, enhanced. Uh, they're designed for more pressure, from what I understand. What are some of the other changes that the industry has made to make it safer? Well, one other rulemaking that we did see was the workplace safety or SEMS rule. Uh, there's sort of four important areas to that rule that, that weren't covered in the previous regulations about the environmental management systems, there's a hazard analysis, a, ma a management of change, there's a set of operating procedures, and there's a set of mechanical integrity requirements. But basically, many of the large operators on the outer continental shelf already had a version of that SEMS program covering those areas, but those voluntary programs are now mandatory uh, for all operators. And BOMER uh, is implementing something that is very similar to what the United Kingdom safety case system is. Uh, that has emanated from there, but it allows for a higher degree of collaboration between the different entities that are on board a drill ship uh, out on the deep water in terms of collaboration and communication, and that, and that yields a safer environment. So did the industry provide pushback on any of these re regulations, or is this something that was readily embraced? I think that the industry provided a lot of input and collaboration into the regulations because they have a tremendous amount of knowledge from having done this uh, in the field. 
So there was a, a tremendous amount of collaboration. You know, th these were not regulations that came without a cost. I mean, the, the drilling safety rule estimates uh, for new regulations was an annual cost for an operator of about $183 million. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and the workplace safety rule wasn't quite as uh, expensive, at least in terms of the rule estimates, but it talked about a $2 million annual uh, cost for each operator plus over half a million dollars in terms of one-time implementation costs. But some of that is muted by the fact that there were operators that already had stems in place and wouldn't necessarily incur the, only incur the, uh, the additional cost given the new regulation. But th these, these were uh, costly regulations that, that were implemented, and um, so the industry was very cognizant of that as well because they're trying to compete in an environment where you're talking about world oil prices. But the, they felt that, I think generally, that these were the appropriate regulations to put in place. Yeah, well, I appreciate you talking about those those dollar figures, and these are just uh, these dollar figures that you're talking about, which to me feel feel astronomical, uh, are in addition to the millions of dollars it costs to drill a well. Because I think people, the average person out there, doesn't have a comprehension of a how expensive it is to drill a well offshore in the deep water, but also how technologically advanced the process is? Yeah, it's, uh, well, I mean, expense-wise, you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to drill a well, if not more. And you're talking about a very long investment horizon because there's the time to get the lease and then get the ship on location uh, to drill the well, to take that drill ship off location and bring a different ship on to do your production. So it's a tremendously complica complex system of technology and people uh, in terms of, um, so it, it, I think that sort of covers the cost. You know, in terms of complexity, too, remember that you're, you have a drill ship that's, you know, five, in 5,000 feet of water that is holding itself in position using, uh, you know, a global positioning system, extending uh, a rise or down through that water column to the bottom of the sea and then drilling a hole that's about the size of your dinner plate several thousand feet into the ground, uh, that's, a, that's a pretty complex operation and requires uh, a lot of ingenuity from uh, some of the many great men and women in the Gulf Coast region who have been trained and, and qualified to perform those types of operations. Yeah, it's uh, the technology is is really baffling to understand, and I I didn't realize that that the rigs are held. Am I correct here? Did I understand what you said? They're held in place with a global positioning system. Yes, I mean in essence, you have uh, drives on the different corners of the rig that help it to to stay in one in one place. There's not an, necessarily an anchor that you know gets thrown overboard where you anchor the the ship to the ground. If you come, if you're developing uh, oil and gas reserves up on the continental shelf, then you could be on a jackup rig, which is, is stationary. But in this case, you're talking about a, 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 what's called a mobile offshore drilling unit. It is, it is literally a ship. It's a, it's a square-shaped ship, um, but it is a ship. It, it moves around in the water, and it uses its drives to keep it in the same place. Hmm. That's very helpful to understand. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, a process at all, Jason? Yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty amazing feat of engineering just to just to hold that ship in place and then to put all that pipe down through a riser and uh, and drill into the ground several thousand feet. 
So, as you know, we've got about a minute and a half left of, on this segment. What, what should people, you know, what comfort is there for people, especially those who live along the Gulf and drilling is continuing uh, now as we speak um, and, and, you know, will continue. What comfort is there for people along the Gulf and, and that, that, that it's going to be done safely and cleanly? And uh, do you think that America is the, the cleanest and safest driller? Well, I mean, we continue to have a world-class reserves that are coupled with relatively low geopolitical risk and, and attractive fiscal terms, and that's a good thing for, for the Gulf Coast region and for the economy. I mean, that in combination with, you know, some of the best uh, folks in the industry performing the work who are highly incentivized to do it well and to do it in a safe and environmentally uh, protective manner uh, is a good thing for the region. You know, the... The biggest impediment to Gulf activity right now is, to some degree, the low prices uh, of oil. Sure. Uh, and, uh, you know, the deep water is sort of a different type of investment opportunity. The good news is we continue to see some folks, uh, you know, Wall Street and other big, and big oil folks who are interested in exploring in deep water, and we continue to see major fines from some of, the, some of those folks, uh, which will bring more uh, domestic oil online. Uh, which is better for national, from a national security standpoint. So I think there's lots of positives to look to, uh, but certainly oil prices are, are one that you know people have a close eye on. Well, great. Jason Hutt from Bracewell and Giuliani, the head of the Environment and Natural Resources Group, thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Okay, David, I don't know what segment this is going to be. It's the first one recording, so I don't know what segment it is. And we will record in three, two, one. Welcome to America's Voice for Energy. You know, it was five years ago when the Deepwater Horizon accident happened, and for 87 days, Americans watched oil spilling into the Gulf of New Mexico. Gulf of Mexico. It was called the worst environmental disaster ever seen in the United States and, in fact, the world. But now, five years later, we've learned some lessons. And, you know, as I wrote my column on this topic this week, 
Remember, you can find my column on Breitbart.com, RedState.com, and American Spectator, just to name a few. One of the resources that I looked to was a wonderful report put together by EMP Magazine, and their their report was really helpful to me in that it addressed a variety of issues uh, about the spill five years later. Their report is called Moving Forward, Macondo, Five Years Later. And today I'm pleased to have with us Jennifer Presley, who is the senior offshore editor for E&P Magazine. And she's going to tell us about this special report, and we'll give you the uh, web address for it so you can look it up yourself, as it has lots of insightful information. So Jennifer, thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, this is a big topic. Uh, you know, it's been five years, and and as I mentioned in the introduction, the the predictions of what was going to happen as a result of this spill were dire. And while, of course, it was definitely a tragedy, um, environmentally, it's not been as dramatic as was predicted. And that's one of the areas that you address in your report. Um, yes. You know, I think the, the great thing about Mother Nature is that, uh, you know, she often keeps us guessing uh, with the will it be or won't it be, uh, just everything with nature. And certainly I think with, while the Gulf of Mexico is still in a healing process, if you will, um, we are seeing, you know, that that healing process is underway in many ways. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Now, when you started to put together this report where you address five areas specifically, technology, regulatory, environmental, response, and ENP, as you uh, headed into working on this project, were you surprised with the environmental news you learned as a result of this? Um. No, I, I can't say that I was. Um, I've been in, in and around, um, you know, industry and, and even on the, the science side for some time now and uh, know that uh, there's been considerable work done and there's considerable attention paid uh, to restoring the Gulf, you know, back to as close to the uh, condition that it was in uh, before, you know, before the uh, incident happened, mm -hmm. I butchered that completely. Um, you know, as you worked on this report, overall, what would you say was the most uh, surprising thing for you? You know, I, I think surprising. Um, surprising how. You know, anything, I mean, it, it, did you, I, I know one of the things that I personally found surprising uh, as I did my research to write my column, uh, which is nowhere near as thorough as your report, uh, which you all did a great job on, by the way, thank you, uh, that I was surprised that, for example, the drilling moratorium that President Obama uh, instituted immediately following the spill didn't have a bigger negative impact on production in the Gulf? Well, I think um, certainly one thing we can say about the industry um, with some certainty is that 
uh, it will find a way. And, <laughs> um, you know, we have a history, if you will, in the industry of, of uh, surmounting challenges and, and overcoming obstacles that are placed before us. And, um, you know, I think the other kind of important thing, too, that's worth noting here is that uh, we do surmount those challenges and at the same time learn from those lessons, you know, that um, of that present themselves. We, you know, I've been on many a drill floor where, you know, it's safety first. You know, if you see anything, you know, it is your responsibility to speak up and, and address it right away. And, you know, certainly that safety message is uh, is a large part of the overall Macondo story. Um, being able to say stop on the floor and move forward is is, is key. Um, you know, and, and also with industry, we learn from those lessons and we find a better way to do it. And certainly over the last five years, you know, there's been considerable research put forth, just not on just the technology side, but on the environmental side, yeah. um, that uh, is starting to to um, really um, blossom, if you will, and come together now. And uh, it's it's exciting to see. What are some of those technological advances that have taken place and those lessons learned, as you say? Well, certainly with uh, the, on the technology side, uh, if you look at uh, uh, the blowout preventers or the BOPs, um, you know, there's been considerable uh, redesign there, uh, GE oil and gas uh, with the recently introduced uh, their new um, blind shear ram for use in its 18-inch, uh, quarter-inch BOPs. And, um, you know, that, that blind shear ram, that's, that's the, the last... Uh, Really, that's the last. Um, now, what's the word I'm looking for? Last um, line. Of well, I'm glad you're mentioning the blind shear uh, cutoff. Would you call it? Because when I read your report, I read about that, but I really didn't understand what that what that is. But I understand that. At, at the time of the Macondo well explosion, that that was an issue. We were trying to cut some piping and couldn't cut it or couldn't seal it. I don't recall. Well, the the blind uh, the, the shear ram. What that does, if you will, if you think of um, if you think of say a straw, and you need okay. to somehow you know that straw is, is in the ground, and you have fluid coming out of that straw at a very high rate, and you need to somehow stop that that flow from happening you know the, the blind shear rams you know you, basically you in simplest terms you, you push a button and it's supposed to activate and immediately cut that that straw or that pipe with the casing in this in, in this situation cut it and seal it and so is that something that is built into the pipe then no it's actually a a piece of technology it's a it's a large very large component that sits on the seafloor or Sorry, it, um, it's part of the drilling package, the safety package. That okay. So, so it would be a part of every well from here on out. Well, it was it was there before, I mean, it's okay. What, what is so the the blowout preventer, the blowout prevention stack, is a piece of 
technology that's lowered down um, uh, prior to a well is drilled and installed there. And then once the process begins, um, you know, it's it's there to uh, prevent. Well, it's you know, it's it's there to prevent the blowout. And it yeah, does back that up. With, 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 it does that using those blind shear ramps. Okay, well that's helpful. So I didn't understand what it was when I read about it. I didn't. I really didn't get what I was reading about. So you think of the ram. Um, they're cylinders. They're they're under extreme, uh, very high hydraulic pressure. Hydraulic pressure, and they're operated by that. And so it, it basically closes and cuts and seals the uh, the pipe. That's pretty amazing. Yes, it is. And but that that equipment was on the Macondo well, or this is a new technology that will now be a part of these wells in the future. No, it was it was on the Macondo well. It was a part of the Deepwater Horizons drilling package, and it's a it's a standard piece of equipment. Um, more so now. <laughs> And what's the upgrade to it, or what's the new technology that's been applied to that piece of equipment since then? Well, they've they've basically, you know, they've gone in and and redesigned, and um, they've gone under considerable testing, and um, so yes. <laughs> okay, that's fine. I I know you're not the engineer yourself. You're the editor who put the report together. So I, I'm perhaps asking you information that's uh, beyond your particular expertise. But as I read about that myself, I was fascinated. But I didn't really understand. So you've explained that uh, what that that improved technology uh, is, and that that's very helpful. I appreciate that. So what are some of the other areas in your report that uh, would, be, uh, would be of interest to our listeners? Well, I think, uh, you know, our listeners, uh, your listeners would, would find it um, interesting to read about uh, our regulatory uh, section. You know, we go into detail as to some of the, um, what were some of those initial steps that were made mm-hmm. after the Macondo um, incident occurred. How, how did the government respond? And one of the you know, positive things to see out of that is just the considerable amount of technology research that's been driven on the, uh, on the governmental or the government side uh, through the Department of Energy and other programs. Um, well, I'm glad you're mentioning the regulatory side because that's something I totally didn't touch in my column. You know, I kind of am limited to 1,200 to 1,500 words, and then I take that same column, which came out to be around 1,500 words, and edit it down to a 600-word version and a 900-word version for newspapers. So you kind of have to really carefully pick what you're going to address. But I saw that uh, government and industry have worked together perhaps in unprecedented ways on uh, the regulatory side of the... Oh, most definitely. One of the initial things that uh, you know, kind of came out of uh, the incident was the, um, the creation of um, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management Regulation and Enforcement, or BOMER, and then that was eventually replaced uh, you know, by the Bureau of, of Offshore Energy Management, or BOEM, and uh, BESI, or the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement. Having that separation, um, if you will, uh, there's a 
as, as I like to say, kind of a ch- separation of church and state in there, and that um, you have your enforcement on one side, and then you have your management. They're two separate entities, um, other than all kind of being controlled, uh, not controlled so much as over the oversight being coming from one. There's two targeted specific areas um, operating uh, to their own, you know, on their own um, mission or their, their own directives. And so yeah. I, We've only got about 30 seconds le- left, Jennifer. Time's flown really quickly. How can people see this report that you all put together that I found to be so helpful? Oh, the web address is www.epmag.com. And if you look in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a nice pretty blue box that uh, banner that advertises uh, the, the report moving forward. And, uh, you know, it's a, it was a nice report that was pulled together by both uh, the EMP team as well as the oil and gas investor team. So it was a joint project between the two uh, franchises. Great. Jennifer Presley, Senior Editor for Offshore uh, E&P Magazine, a Senior Offshore Editor for E&P Magazine. Thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Who is or what is USJF? It is a nonprofit legal organization founded to protect our rights through the U.S. Constitution. Active in educating the public, USJF has also contributed directly and indirectly to legal defense efforts in many celebrated cases involving fundamental conservative principles. Cases of note include the Mount Soledad Cross case, the Arizona Immigration Law case, the Obama eligibility cases, the NDAA illegal detention issue, and many more. Help this nonprofit as they help you. Visit www.usjf.net today. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. We're in our final segment today, and in the first three segments, we've been discussing the five-year anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon accident and uh, the environmental impacts and technological advances that have been made since then. In our final segment, we're going to take a little bit of a detour, still actually focusing on the state of Louisiana, which had big impacts from the Deepwater Horizon spill. But this segment, we're going to talk about solar power. If you are a regular listener to America's Voice for Energy, you know that lately I've written quite a bit on solar power and uh, the impacts that it has on energy stability, grid stability, pricing, and so forth. And this week, earlier this week, I was in the state of Louisiana uh, talking with some legislators about their situation in Louisiana. And while I was there, I met Emery Belton, who's agreed to be on with me for this final segment. And he's really been um, following the solar energy story in Louisiana from beginning to current. I can't say beginning to end because that legislation hasn't happened yet, but certainly from beginning to the current time. So, Emery, thank you for joining me today on America's Voice for Energy. It's my pleasure, Marita. Glad to be here. 
Thank you, thank you. So tell me a little bit about your background and how you got involved in this subject. Well, um, I'm a practicing attorney and legislative lobbyist here in, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, I've been practicing law about 25 years. Um, I, I worked initially 10 years for the Louisiana Attorney General's office. Uh, then I um, went to work for Entergy Corporation in 2000. As and Entergy is? is? Is the state's largest uh, domestic utility company here. Okay, all right. Um, utility. I worked in their regulatory department in the um, in legal for about seven years, um, and then after Hurricane Katrina, because of my extensive experience with state government, uh, I was moved into the governmental affairs department um, to help with legislation uh, that we passed post Katrina to help uh, keep utility rates down as the company recovered the monies that it had spent for um, restoration. So. Um, I've been lobbying and, and practicing law for quite a number of years now, and, and my focus is, is principally in the energy uh, arena, whether it be oil and gas uh, or utilities, or I've even represented um, renewable power clients in the past, so I'm, I'm very familiar with all the issues associated uh, with what's going on. Yeah, and that makes you a great addition to uh, to my life and to uh, our show today. So tell me, you know, what what's the background of Louisiana's kind of current solar crisis, uh, and especially as it relates to the budgetary crisis at the moment in Louisiana? Yeah, there's just by way of background. Um, back in 2007, a bill was passed uh, creating um, at that time the most lucrative tax credit refund program in the nation for, for solar, um, residential solar installations. Um, now, at the time the bill was passed, um, the fiscal note or, the, or projected fiscal impact um, to the state treasury was $300,000. Last year alone, um, the impact to the treasury was $67 million, um, 57 of which was a direct cash refund out of the state treasury to... Um, can, can you explain so, that a little more? Because when I first heard that, I, I couldn't comprehend that what I'd heard was accurate. Well, what happens is the way the, the tax credits work is um, the law provides uh, holders of these tax credits a... Uh, if a system is, is, up, is worth uh, upwards of $25,000, the, the holder of that credit is entitled to a $12,500 refundable tax credit, which basically means if if they have an out, outstanding tax liability to the debt, to the state rather, they can apply it to that, or if they if they don't have an outstanding tax liability, the, the state will actually issue them a cash refund. So basically for every solar installation, residential solar installation that has uh, taken place in Louisiana since 2007, the state of Louisiana has contributed $12,500. So and you multiply that uh, times the numerous um, installations that are, that are happening, and that's where you get the $67 million from. Just well, and that, that, that's baffling. Do, do you know, Emory, does any other state have such a policy? The, the policies vary around the country. Um, yeah. But, but it's my understanding that, that no other state has as lucrative a, a plan as Louisiana, uh, and those states that did have lucrative plans have experienced a similar result and are in, our, in, our, in the process of scaling 
those programs back. You know, and I think um, at the time the legislature passed this in 2007, nobody really understood um, just how the how the marketplace was gonna was gonna deal with this credit. And, and what's happening happened is is you have an explosion of um, these solar leasing companies um, who are um, signing homeowners up. Um, you know, at a very rapid pace, uh, while the whole time knowing that they'll be able to cash into this this very lucrative um, tax refund or tax credit. Um, you know, here in Louisiana, we, we, we it's really a two-headed monster. I mean, not only is the solar industry being subsidized by, by this lucrative tax credit, but the Public Service Commission here in Louisiana is in the throes of grappling with um, an issue concerning net metering, which I'm, I know you're familiar with and, and yes. some of your listeners or reader may, readers may be familiar with. Currently, um, solar owners, residential solar owners, um, receive, you know, full, the full retail rate of electricity uh, for, their, for their credit, for power that's flowed, you know, from their solar panels back into the grid. As opposed to other power providers to the grid, um, are only reimbursed of what they call the avoided term, but but in real terms, the solar um, customers here in Louisiana are, are being reimbursed at a rate of between eight and ten cents a kilowatt hour, while the purchase power price is only around three cents a kilowatt hour. So in effect, not only are the solar folks receiving the lucrative state tax credit subsidy. But they're also receiving a very lucrative subsidy on the backs of all the other utility ratepayers in Louisiana. So, right, and that's you know, that's the big piece of the puzzle uh, that that many people don't don't comprehend. Right, that's right, that's right. And you know, the Public Service Commission um, has opened a, an investigation. They call it a docket, um, and they they've been in the process process of investigating it. Uh, their consultant has issued a, uh, a very extensive analysis um, basically bringing home the reality of, of the benefits or lack thereof of, of these solar credits and these net metering issues, um, much to, to chagrin of the, the, um, the solar, these solar companies and these leasing companies. Yeah, I can um, imagine because this is, this is their yeah. gravy train. Right. That's right. And it's not to say, I mean, I, I don't want to come across as being biased. I mean, they have other... Um, solar companies um, doing business or attempting to do business here in Louisiana um, that receive no credits. I mean, they're they're just they're providing services uh, just based on their cost of doing business with no subsidies whatsoever. And and they, um, you know, they and really, how is that fair? It you know, I mean, it's uh, it, it's slowly developing. But but for instance, I mean, in, in the last five years alone, you know the the um, cost of electricity from solar panels has gone from probably 20 or 25 cents a kilowatt hour down to the 8 to 10 cent range per kilowatt hour. So while it's still a little more expensive, you know, than conventional um, fuel sources, you can, the, the, the plus side is, is that you can enter into long-term fixed-price contracts with, with no price escalation as opposed to, you know, the case with natural gas or coal, which, you know, as you know, Fuel, fuel prices fluctuate. So right. there, there are benefits both ways. And, and as technology continues to advance, um, you know, those those resources are becoming more competitive. Um, and, and likewise, um, you know, the, 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 there's, you know, in my 
either. I mean, there's really no need for this subsidy from the state or the, the utility rate payers. Um, you know, as one legislator, you know, expressed to me, you know, she said, well, these people have been receiving the subsidy since 2007, and if they can't make their businesses work by now, then, you know, shame on them. Yes, um, yes. So, you know, and, and not to mention you mentioned the state's budget crisis. Louisiana is currently facing a $1.6 billion, and that's what it would be, budget deficit uh, for the coming fiscal year, which, which starts on July 1st. And the legislature's in session right now, um, uh, just doing the best they can to try to fill that fill that budget gap. And you know they're they're contemplating closing hospitals, closing universities, um, you know, cutting off uh, significant funding to local governments that that you know provide funding for school boards and school districts and fire districts and police departments and sheriff's departments. You know, and, and when, and when, when you look at when you look at those, I think this is what you're about to say. I'm sorry, I interrupted you before yeah. you got it said. But when you look at those dramatic uh, measures, uh, cutting credits, tax credits to the solar industry seems like really a no-brainer, in my opinion. I know it won't fix the whole budget hole, but it's right. certainly one step. Well, in the utility world, we call that reasonable and prudent. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. and, okay. and I think that, that that that's that's the best way I can characterize it. Now, in this session, you know, legislators have um, begun to address it. It probably fifteen bills or so that involve the solar tax credit issue in general. Uh, four of which are seeking an outright repeal of the credit. Um, uh, a few of which uh, are trying to. Um, focus on the, the leasing companies as opposed to the, the regular sales companies because the leasing companies seem to be uh, the group that, that has really um, uh, benefited the most from this tax credit program. So they're trying to... Yeah, and they, and they kind of bundle these tax credits, don't they, and then kind of That's resell right. them to corporate clients that That's need right. the, the tax benefit. And so it's, it's, right. it's uh, really kind of a questionable practice. Right. So they have, you know, that, that leasing focused. Um, and then there's some, some bills that are targeting the refundable nature of the tax credit. And right. Because that, that's really what is creating, the, I mean, a significant cash flow problem for the state. So, you know, there are a couple of bills that say, well, you know, we're going to eliminate the refundability component. Now, they can still use the credit, you know, for so many years going forward a, a, against their state income tax. But, you know, the, the, the industry... Um, in reaction to all this, has has brought on board an army of of very well equipped and high powered lobbyists to try to keep help you know to help this from not uh, happening, and uh, so it's it's really going to be uh, I think quite a battle here. Um, but but I hope my hope is that you know um, reasonable heads will prevail, and when stacked against the other more pressing needs of the state. That, that, the, that the legislature would do the right thing and, and if not outright repeal these credits, at least um, scale them back to the point where, you know, it, it's reasonable and whatever to whatever degree they think that means. But um, I'm, I'm quite frankly hoping for an outright repeal, but we'll see. We're still early. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you on that. We're out of time, Emory Belton. You've been a great guest, fascinating information, and uh, we'll look forward to seeing what happens there in Louisiana. We're well, done Maria. for this week with America's Voice for Energy. Thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com. 
the best in chat radio designed just for you.